Well, good morning, Apostles Houston. If you're worshiping with us here on our campus or if you're worshiping online, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, Wherever you are, if you would stand uh, for the reading of our gospel. Uh, Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came, and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus uh, to rescue us and invite us into life, life to the fullest with you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people of worship and and to be a people who are a part of your mission in the world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started a two-part series called The Gospel and Politics. And together, we are asking the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus in a political world? And we looked at Acts chapter 16 together and really observed that there's two things that should shape us in terms of our engagement with politics. The first is worship, and the second is mission. Last week we looked at worship, and this week we're going to look at mission. And if you missed last week, I do strongly encourage you just to go back and to listen to that on YouTube or on our podcast. But this week we want to focus on on this idea of mission and how it shapes our engagement with politics. So if you would open up your Bible to Acts chapter 16. Uh, We're going to start in verse 33. And just a reminder uh, from what we covered last week in chapter 16. Paul and Silas, uh, they've been arrested, they've been thrown in jail, and then around midnight as they're worshiping, there's this big earthquake. And the cell doors are shaken open. And so the jailer rushes in, and and in his fear that the prisoners have escaped, he's about to take his own life. And Paul and Silas tell him, just stop, we're all here. They, they chose not to escape. And so in that moment, the, the jailer asks, how can I be saved? And he and his entire household hear the good news of the gospel and come to faith in Jesus. And so that's where we pick up the story in verse 33. It says, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. So I want us to notice two things here about Paul and Silas and the way they engage with political authority. And then after that, we'll talk about how that connects with mission. 
So the first thing I want us to see is that they recognized and submitted to political authority. In verse 33, we see this beautiful picture of the transforming power of the gospel. The jailer, uh, the one who had been responsible for their, their torture and imprisonment, is now feeding them and washing their wounds. Uh, we're told that the jailer and his entire family, uh, his whole household, come to faith in Jesus. So the question is, how did that happen? Well, it happened because Paul and Silas chose to stay in their cells, even though they could have escaped. Uh, they wouldn't have fully justified you know, to, to do so, but they chose willingly to submit to the governing authorities that had imprisoned them, even a great personal cost to themselves. It's amazing. They even convinced the other prisoners not to escape. And so what we see here is that as followers of Jesus, we are called to engage with political power by recognizing it and by submitting to it. Now, even just hearing that, I'd be willing to bet if you're under the age of about 35 or so, um, you might bristle at that concept. You might be inherently suspicious of authority because you, you've, you've witnessed kind of a hyper-politicized engagement of Christians, uh, the generations before you. You've, you've seen in your lifetime how political parties have kind of manipulated the church, and, and you've lived through the public moral failings of religious leaders who got entangled with politics and power. And so you may hear a statement like that, that we're to submit to governing authorities. And you may think, yeah, in theory, but really the church should just stay completely clear of politics, stay out of politics as much as possible, even to the, to the degree that you might not even recognize it or be willing to submit or engage in politics. In other words, don't let politics, you might say, taint the mission of the church. And so at first, this may kind of seem uh, humble and, and virtuous, but in reality, it's actually very short-sighted, and, and even on the selfish side, because it ignores the fact that political engagement isn't just about me and my tribe. As followers of Jesus, we actually have a social responsibility for the common good. That's why Paul writes in Romans 13, 13 let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And Paul goes on to say that God holds governing authorities responsible for the power that they are given. To quote Russell Moore, he says, in a democratic system of government like we have in the United States, the final authority rests with the people. What happens in the voting booth, he says, is the delegation of that responsibility. It's each of us saying, use the sword in this way. Citizenship is an office in this country that all of us are invested in. If we refuse to use the sword we have been given in a way that is just and in keeping with the common good, we will be held accountable for our apathy and the injustice in our society. We have a responsibility to society and to future generations to be politically engaged. And history has shown that faithful followers of Jesus can actually accomplish great good through government. One of the most powerful examples is the work of William Wilberforce, a story that might be familiar to you, a British politician who followed Jesus and made the abolition of slavery in Great Britain his life's work. Historian and Yale professor David Bryan Davis writes of Wilberforce and the abolition movement. The abolitionists demonstrated that religion and conscience can be a force for good in the world, that the darkest instincts and destructive interests of humanity can sometimes be overcome, and that foreign policy idealism is possible and powerful. While there is little evidence that humanity has changed for the better over the past two millennia, a few historical events like Britain's abolition of its extremely profitable slave industry suggests that human 
history has also been something more than an endless contest of greed and power. See, followers of Jesus can accomplish great good by working within the existing systems and institutions of government. And while the church has often gotten things wrong, there have been moments like the abolition of slavery when the church has gotten it right. I think we have to recognize that it is a gift. It's a gift when we get to live in a country where we as citizens can actually affect social change. And while we must acknowledge America has gotten some things wrong and some things very wrong, we are called to respect those in authority over us. Scripture is clear. We are called to pay our taxes. We're called to pray for and encourage those in leadership, including those in political leadership, our our mayor, our governor, our president. We're called to do these things. We are called to engage. It's biblical to do so. And so like Paul and Silas, we're called to recognize and submit to political authority. The second thing I want us to notice here is that Paul and Silas resisted political authority. Look at verse 35. It says, When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, and Paul's response was, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we were Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. You see, the night before, Paul and Silas were willing to submit, but now they resist governing authority. Paul asserts his right as a citizen of Rome and demands that the magistrates actually come to the jail and publicly acknowledge their wrong. Now, why the difference? Why submit in one case and resist in the other? In this case, Paul resists now for the sake of the church in Philippi. He doesn't want this situation to repeat itself. In other words, this this level of injustice to continue. Paul knows that it's not just about him. It's about others, and he bears a social responsibility for others who might be harmed or unjustly treated in the same way. And so he here asserts his rights, and he resists governing authority. So while we are called to submit to governing authorities, there are limits to the government's power and authority in our lives. As Pastor John Tyson says, as followers of Jesus, we are called to obey the state, but not to worship the state. No human-led state or system will ever be perfect and worthy of absolute loyalty. And not all delegated authority facilitates the will of God. There are legitimate acts of government, and there are illegitimate acts of government. And so for us as followers of Jesus, when the government commands us to do something that's morally wrong, we have a moral duty to resist it. In our nation, there's a a rich history of this kind of resistance in, in terms of civil disobedience. Sadly, I think much of the tradition of civil disobedience is being lost. And, and, and what's taking place across our nation is evidence of that, I think. Because while I'm grateful for the activism, especially of this younger generation, what I would say is much of it, even some of the nonviolent protests, are actually animated by a spirit of rage and hatred and self-righteousness. Not all, but it's present. And so again, to quote John Tyson, civil disobedience is a powerful but a nuanced and thoughtful response. It is not sticking it to the man, throwing Molotov cocktails or destroying businesses and livelihoods. It is a thoughtful, theologically informed, sacrificial response that says, I am willing to suffer the consequences of disobedience that is based in Christ-like humility and conviction. There will be conflict. There will be lines we have to draw. There will be moments when we have to stand up and protest and resist. 
It will happen around issues of power and money and sexuality and race. But Revelation 13 reminds us that ultimately earthly government and society will demand our worship. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to confuse legality with morality. As followers of Jesus, we don't look to the government to determine what is right and wrong. Our government has and will continue to make things legal that are immoral. And we will have a choice on where we draw the line. We need to be prepared to do that. And when these moments come, followers of Jesus must resist the state. But we must do so in the spirit of humility and out of a willingness to sacrifice for the gospel and the common good. And so as followers of Jesus, we're called to submit to the government, uh, but we're also called to resist government. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we know when to submit and when to resist? How do we know how to respond? Well, the question is, how did Paul and Silas know? I would say they knew when to submit and when to resist because they prioritized the mission of God. They knew when to resist, when to submit, because they prioritized the mission of God. Their mission was to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has ushered in a new kingdom on the earth, a kingdom that would bring salvation and justice to the world, a kingdom that will redeem and restore creation and humanity from sin and the wages of sin. Jesus came, in other words, to defeat evil, and ultimately he will return and establish his reign, his kingdom, forever. And so the mission of the church is to go to the nations, to go to all people around the world and make disciples by proclaiming this good news and welcoming people into the fullness of life with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when the political powers of this world, the political authorities, enable us to fulfill that mission, we can affirm and operate under their authority. And when the political powers and authorities inhibit our ability to fulfill that mission, we must resist their authority. In our nation, I really believe that our allegiance to Jesus will increasingly bring us into conflict with our governing authorities. Our faithfulness to Jesus and his mission will be tested. It's being tested even now. Just as an example of how we might respond in in this cultural moment, uh, on April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a name that many of you know and are familiar with his story, but He was a 39-year-old German Lutheran pastor. And he, along with some other pastors, resisted Hitler and the Nazi regime. And he was executed at a concentration camp in Flossenburg, Germany, uh, hanged uh, to death. And the camp doctor who was present there, he would later say, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed so devout and so certain that his God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. And then he says this. He says, in almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly seen a man die who so entirely was submissive to the will of God. John Howard Yoder writes in his famous book, The Politics of Jesus, that the believer's cross It's no longer any and every kind of suffering or sickness or tension. The believer's cross must be, like Jesus, the price of social nonconformity. It is not like the sickness or catastrophe, the inexplicable, unpredictable suffering. It is the end of the path freely chosen after counting the cost. It is not like Luther or uh, Zinzendorf or Kierkegaard's cross an inward wrestling of the sensitive soul with self and sin. It is the social reality of representing 
and an unwilling world the order, the kingdom to come. Jesus calls all of us, like Bonhoeffer, like Yoder describes here, to take up our cross, Mark 8.34. Jesus' death on the cross was a cosmic and spiritual moment of defeat for sin. But it was also a declaration of his power over the earthly powers. He was executed as an enemy of the state. He was a threat to the earthly powers because he demanded obedience to an authority beyond their own. Likewise, Jesus' followers were executed for refusing to show proper deference in those first centuries to to the Roman emperor. Followers of Jesus challenged social and political status quos on slavery, infanticide, the treatment of women. And Jesus' commands to love God and love neighbor were seen for the full and radical political and social impact they could have. Too often the church, I think, forgets this calling to take up our cross, to, to forsake all else in light of our identity and our mission in Jesus. And the closer we get to earthly power, the more we forget and tend to forsake. We end up laying down our crosses and conforming to the kingdoms of this world. And so we must remember that our mission is not to establish a Christian nation or a Christian government. In our cultural moment, there's a myth of an idealized American past that's driving some religious groups, and I think some well-meaning Christians, to say, let's take back our nation for God. And I just want to warn us, we should be very wary of ideas that promote gaining power or fostering a Christian state. History itself, human history, tells us that such efforts often lead to disastrous results. As followers of Jesus, we must resist this for what it is. It is a counterfeit mission. The mission of the church is and always will be to make disciples of Jesus Christ. When interrogated by Pontius Pilate, Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, through the church, God has chosen to establish a new people. And what that means is there's no special nations now. Under the new covenant, there is only a special people scattered in every nation. This was God's plan from the beginning. The choosing and blessing of Israel was never just about Israel. It was about being a blessing for the world, for the nations. And that's God's heart today. And it should be the heart of the church. We should long to see the blessing, not of one nation, but of all nations. Our citizenship in heaven, it's incredibly liberating in that way. It means that we are free to carry out the mission of God, to make disciples under any circumstances and under any form of government. It enables us to clearly see when political authority is in line with God's will and when it is not. The mission of God frees us to submit to and resist political authority because ultimately we are clear on who we follow. We're clear that we follow Jesus Christ. So to close, I just want to encourage us to remember that ultimately our hope is that we would see people's lives transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. The truth is government can never actually transform a person's life heart. You can't legislate. You can incentivize and and penalize, but only Jesus can actually transform a person's life. The the government will never be able, for example, to make a greedy person uh, want to become radically generous. What made Zacchaeus, for example, one of the richest men in his own city, want to give to the poor, it was his encounter with the incarnated love and hospitality of God and Jesus. So if you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, 
I mean, think about your own life. Think about how God has transformed your heart. It's not something that came through losing arguments or submitting to rules and laws or mandates. Our mission isn't to win arguments or debates or even elections. It's to see people's lives transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to close and pray that that God would give us that heart as we enter into this political season. Lord, I pray our approach to politics, Lord, I pray it would be driven by your heart. Lord, I pray it would surprise people, Lord, that our approach to politics would be so different than the world's because we're committed to you, to worshiping you, and to your mission. And so, Lord, give us humility, give us wisdom, help us to be discerning, to know when to submit and when to resist. Lord, anchor us in the scriptures. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding that we might navigate the complex issues with thoughtfulness and grace. And Lord, help us to find where you are at work. Help us to find common ground with one another and where possible, even with those who don't follow Jesus. Lord, help us to be people of worship and mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.